Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Broad Eye podcast. I'm Dr. Bruno Fernandez, and today I have the pleasure of having Dr. Jay Duker, Chief Operating Officer at iPoint Pharmaceutical, with us. How's it going, Jay? It's going very well, Bruno. Thanks for uh, allowing me to do this. Thank you for accepting our invite. Uh, I'm excited about our talk today, and there are some points of your career path that kind of resonate with me, so uh, I'm particularly excited about what you're going to share. So you're obviously a renowned ophthalmologist and uh, had a very successful career as a clinician, researcher, surgeon, and, and now you, you, have, you hold an executive position at the pharma industry. So we're going to cover everything point by point, but kind of like walk us through, like, I mean, your, your sure. beginnings and... Uh... Yeah, so, so uh, Bruno, I think 30 years ago when I entered practice, if you had told me I was going to end up in a position like this, I, I wouldn't have believed it. But, you know, life is funny. And I think that uh, sometimes opportunities present themselves and our careers head in a little different direction because of that. And, and I think my career over 30 odd years has really been an example of that. Uh, I, I trained at Will's Eye Hospital, uh, both uh, residency and fellowship. And uh, my wife is from the Boston area, so she didn't give me a lot of choices when it came to finding a job. So we came up to Boston and I joined a private practice for a year and a half, which was an interesting experience. But fortunately, after some period of time, uh, the Department of Ophthalmology at Tufts decided to expand, and I got recruited to be the head of retina at a relatively young age over at Tufts. And I, I went over there, with, uh, and it was a very exciting time. There were four or five of us at the beginning, mostly How young. old were you when you assumed that position? 32, 33. <laughs> That's very early. <laughs> Yeah, and so the the interesting thing there is 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 that the department was growing, uh, and that uh, it was a very clinically based department at the time. But they, uh, Carmen Pulifito and Joel Schumann, were other members of the department, and they had this very interesting device called OCT that had just been invented at MIT in the first unit. Uh, very soon in my career was brought over to our eye center and uh, they allowed me to get involved in the research. And that's what really spawned my, my research interests. Uh, at the same time, I had been interested in drug delivery to the eye. And just coincidentally, the uh, doctor who helped to uh, invent the technology that I'm dealing with now at iPoint uh, worked down the hall from me. And they had a drug drill release device that was being developed for CMV retinitis that was called the Cancycler implant. And I was fortunate to be one of the initial investigators on the Cancycler implant right around the same time. And I ended up, I think I was the second person in the world to put one in and I ended up putting in more than anybody else. But interestingly how this happens, I knew about iPoint's technology when it first started over 25 years ago and it's similar technology to what, what we're doing now. Uh, after Dr. Pulifito left, uh, to go to be the chair at Bascom Palmer. Uh, I was interim chair and then became permanent chair and had been chair for 21 years uh, at Tufts. And it was a great run. Uh, it, it really was a terrific part of my career. 
But uh, starting uh, many years ago, I became more involved in some industry things. Some of my colleagues and I started a company called Hamira Biosciences, which was a, a gene therapy drug delivery company for dry macular degeneration. Uh, and that helped to really prompt uh, my interest in the industry aspects and drug development aspects of, of a career. And I, I think I reached a point where, where many people do, where they, they look at the, the career, they look forward and they look back and they say, you know, is, do I want to continue doing this for forever? And at my age, I decided it was time to take on a, a new challenge. And, and I thought, uh, you know, trying something more directly in industry would be that type of new challenge. And, and as a result, I, you know, decided uh, starting really about two years ago when I became a part-time employee of iPoint, and finally about six months ago when I became a full-time employee, to really have a, a shift in my career. And so far, it's been terrific. I, I think, you know, when you, when you deal with people, uh, it's the same whether you're running a department of ophthalmology or you're the chief operating officer of a, of, of a biotech company. Uh, but uh, the challenges are, are similar, but, but also different, and the timelines are very different. You know, Bruno, as a retina specialist, I think you know this too. You know, we, we, you know, go to the operating room and we try to fix something, you know, retinal detachment or macular hole takes us half hour or an hour and we either fix it or we don't. You know, the timelines in industry, it's not like you're not busy every day. You're very busy, but the timelines are longer. Clinical trials can take years to get results. And so ultimately you're doing drug development, but it takes quite a number of months or years to ultimately know whether your, your, your pathway has been the right one. Yeah. And, you know, I, I had the chance to chat a bit with other physicians that did that transition to like non-attending career, if you can put it that way. And like mm -hmm. myself included. And I, I, one common ground that I've, I found was that the motivation, it's more like a, an extension of like taking care of patients instead of replacing with something else, you know, like, so we are not yes. becoming uh, bureaucrats. Right? Like, it's just that like we've figured out a way to do more good to more patients, you know, like instead of like, like one by one, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. But, but I think researchers in general have understood that from the start is whether you've running a laboratory or you're running a biotech company, uh, or you're involved in clinical trials, you're trying to do good for a large population uh, in, a, in perhaps in a small way. Uh, but, but again, it's, it's, for me, it was, it was time for a new challenge. Uh, you know, I had, I had done the academic aspects of things for many years. I think I advanced our department greatly uh, in a lot of ways. But at some point, you know, we all stepped down and it better off to do it under the circumstances of our own control than, than not. So yeah, it's, I'm still fortunate. iPoint's allowing me to see patients one day a week, at least for now. And so I still have a clinical practice and I'm still involved in that. Yeah, that, that would be my, my next question. If you still have any yep. clinical practice at all. I do. You know, I'm not doing surgery anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, you really can't do surgery part-time, I don't think. I mean, you're either all in or you're not. But I'm seeing, you know, medical retina patients. I still do some ocular oncology and a little uveitis. And uh, it's been great. You know, uh, it's it's actually I, some ways much more relaxing to be able to see patients and not have all those other responsibilities of, of running the department, you know, superimposed at the same time. And um, do you think that... I mean, like seeing patients, it fulfills only your 
continues to fulfill. Obviously, you know, your call to 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 be a doctor, or does that also makes you a better executive uh, in the pharma industry by continue to be in tune with our patients' needs? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I think if eye point wasn't working in the retinal area, then I would it would be a stretch to to say that. But because what we're trying to develop really is at this point, you know, long-term drug delivery of an anti-VEGF agent, being able to see these patients on a regular basis and listen to them and uh, look at their needs and, and observe how our past drugs and, and our new drugs for this condition are working, I think is extraordinarily helpful. Now, if, if I were uh, the COO of a cancer company, then perhaps I wouldn't be answering it the same way. Yeah, no, that's true. And you mentioned like, I mean, being in tune with patients' needs and uh, like looking at the pipeline for iPoint pharmaceuticals, I, I see a common theme there, which is to to reduce the burden of, of uh, ophthalmological treatments. And and one, one common theme that I see nowadays, and it seems to be a trend, is that like, Drugs are there, but patients are not using, right, for a variety of reasons. Yep. And then yep. uh, is, is it like a, a, like the mission of the company or? Yeah, it, it really is. It really is the mission. And, and so what we have is a very unique drug delivery system called Duracert. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned already, it's been around for a while, but the, our scientists have been able to amend the, the, the former iteration of Duracert to make it bioerodable. Uh, previously, with the Utique implant, which we still manufacture and have commercialized, and in, in the Gancycler implant, and uh, you know, Alamera's uh, implant is actually the same technology for diabetic macrodema. They, all these implants have a have a non-erodible polyamide shell around the core of the drug. We've been able to take away that polyamide shell and make the implants, you know, completely bioerodable within the eye. Uh, so what we've done uh, is put a small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitor called virolinib into these bioerodible duracerts with the intention of uh, trying to have an anti-VEGF agent that will last six months to perhaps even nine months uh, inside the eye uh, to allow patients to, uh, we hope, uh, to go uh, longer between visits and longer between injections, which has you know, been a goal of the industry for 15 years since we started with the anti-VEGF agents. And uh, just to put into context and maybe simplify things a bit, because we have a lot of patients in our audience also, uh, so that, uh, that that new drug being developed like aims to treat uh, uh, neovascular AMD, and then uh, the goal on reducing the burden, burden would be to reduce like the, the number of injections from like once a month to like what, like once, twice yes. a year? Yes, hopefully. Uh, but, but, you know, the way to look at this is, is this is a paradigm shift mm -hmm. for patients, practitioners in drug development as well. Now, previously, the, uh, if you had, we had an anti-VEGF agent, you know, the first one was Macugen and, and then uh, Avastin and Lucentis and Ilea all came along. And what each successive drug offered was not necessarily a better visual acuity outcome, but longer durability so that patients didn't have to be injected quite so often. And it was a, in a sense, a replacement. You know, the new one replaced the old one. That's not what we're trying to do at iPoint. 
We're not trying to replace ILEA or Farisimab necessarily, but work with them so that we can get the best outcomes. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, based on our phase one trial, we think perhaps 50% or maybe even more wet AND patients might be able to go up to six months using our implant, which we call EYP-1901, using it alone. Now, that's great. But if you say, well, 50%, what about the other 50%? Well, I, I say, well, two things. First of all, if we know which eyes do best with the implant, then the individual physician's success rate with the implant is going to be greater than 50%. In other words, if we learn from our studies and we can identify the eyes ahead of time, they're the ones that are going to go six months. Uh, so the eyes that we're going to treat. But even if you look at the, our phase one data and you look at the eyes that required supplemental anti-VEGF treatment before six months, the, what we call the treatment burden was markedly reduced in those eyes. So what I mean by that is some of those eyes were getting treated monthly or every six weeks with an anti-VEGF agent. We gave them EYP-1901, and maybe at month four, month five, they required a supplemental injection with another anti-VEGF. But most of those eyes then continued another four or five months without another supplemental injection. So they went from injections every six weeks to injections every three to four months. So what my point is that we don't have to work every six months on every patient because we also appear to be able to reduce the treatment burden significantly in a large percentage of other eyes. Now, there'll always be patients who don't necessarily respond to a treatment. Uh, and uh, we have eyes who required still, you know, injections of supplement every month or two in this study. And that's fine, again, as long as we can identify them. But I'd also argue, uh, since patients miss visits, uh, the idea of having an anti-VEGF agent on board as a baseline treatment in an eye that's going to last six to nine months will give the clinicians and the patients, I think, confidence that even if they do miss a visit or two, that they still have some treatment on board. And the last point I want to make is our mechanism of action is different than the uh, FDA-approved agents. The FDA-approved agents all work at the ligand level by blocking the ligand. We work at the receptor level. And so theoretically, having two mechanisms of action, even uh, using you know both together, may be benefit to patients. Yeah, so I, I guess having this device, if we can call it that way, like inside the eye, it will, in a way, assures that like the peaks and val valleys, like the valleys between injections, like wouldn't be so low, right? Exactly. So, so the, the, the anti-VEGF exactly. levels inside the eye would never, would never follow. Exactly. Uh, and, and so that the, 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 the term that's used with the drug release, Bruno, is called zero-order kinetics. Okay. And that was a unique aspect of the Duracer technology. After an initial burst, because there's some drug on the surface of the implant where you get uh, relatively high levels in the first few weeks, these bioerodible Duracert implants go into what's called zero-order kinetics. So they just release, you know, every minute of every day, every month for six to nine months until the medication runs out at, at, a, at a stable dose. Uh -huh. This type of microdosing, at least theoretically, would allow better control. And I think we've got some evidence of that with our Utique implant. The Utique implant is a tiny dose of flucinolone, which is a corticosteroid. But for 60% of patients with posterior segment uveitis, if you put in a Utique implant, they can go three years with no recurrences. 
three years with one injection. And so that's the power of the microdosing with zero order kinetics is, is shown in those patients. And, and we hope to have a similar outcome with the wet AMD patients as well. And, and, and talking about the device itself, uh, I mean, the device might be not, be, not be the best like choice of wording. Like, so there, there are other implants out there and, uh, you know, like some are an actual hardware, right? I mean, that stays there right. and the drug is inserted and, and Duracert's not, right? Like, I mean, is it completely absorbed by the eye? It, it should be, yes. Mm -hmm. And so that, again, Duracert is injected in the office, mm -hmm. uh, local anesthesia, like any other injection. Uh, in our phase two WebMD trial, the inserts will be injected with a 22 gauge needle. Uh, which is a similar gauge to, you know, for example, the Ozurdex implant, which most retinal clinicians have used extensively. Uh, and we're able to deliver up to three inserts with a single injection, which is a little bit unique. Uh, so for our wet AMD phase two trial, our low dose is two milligrams, which is two inserts, single injection, and the high dose is three milligrams, three inserts, single injection. And these inserts should fully biodegrade. Uh, the majority of the insert is drug, and uh, the other excipients, at least in the laboratory, uh, do fully biodegrade, uh, and uh, we haven't observed it yet in the human eye, and part of the problem is they're actually, the inserts are very hard to photograph. Uh, once they go in, they sink to the bottom of the eye, typically, and even wide field photographs, our investigators are having a hard time taking pictures of them. And what happens is the inserts look yellow when they first go in because the virolinib, that's the color of the virolinib. Uh, and when the virolinib goes away, the inserts are clear and they're tiny little uh, bits of the, the excipients left before they fully reabsorb. And they're actually been difficult to photograph. So uh, at least in the laboratory, they fully they fully dissipate. And the fact that they're difficult to photograph might also mean this. I mean, might, might actually be a good thing because that might also yeah. mean that the patient, that doesn't bother the patient's vision exactly. that much. No. Oh. So it's, it's a typical good news, bad news, difficult to photograph. So we have hard to hard time looking at their you know rate of dissolution in the human eye. Uh, on the other hand, that's exactly right. Uh, we're a little less concerned that uh, patients will be bothered by them. Uh, none of the patients in the phase one trial, although you know, the number was low, 17 eyes, none of the patients were aware of the implants. None of them complained of floaters. Uh, and so if that continues, obviously with the, with the other trials, it'll be a good thing. And, and you, you mentioned that there's the opportunity to inject like more than one insert like in, in, in the eye. So does that give the option of like customizing doses for individual patients? So it's not like a one size fits all sort of thing. Uh, it, it potentially could be that. Uh, it, and so there are some technical issues around, you know, customization and also issues around packaging. And of course, things like, you know, billing and, and, and those are important to, to physicians in, in, and the insurance companies. So uh, as you may be aware, you know, you can't do two uh, anti-VEGF injections uh, within 28 days of each other. Uh, and so that if you wanted to do multiple inserts, you would have to separate them by that, you know, time frame. But, you know, these are issues that, that ultimately what's best for the patient and what gives the best visual results, that's what we're going to do. Uh, the other 
Uh, thing about multiple inserts is not just customization of a single drug, but it does bring up the option of using multiple drugs and multiple pathways. And again, we use an example here of verisimab, which just got FDA approved and it blocks both VEGF and ANCH2. And in our pipeline, uh, we are working on TIE 2 agonists and perhaps using them in Duracert if possible. And the idea of perhaps using them coupled in a single injection with an anti-VEGF agent, that might be something that will prove to be safe and effective in the future. So that's one of the pipeline things that I'm very excited about that, that iPoint is working on. So the, the Duracert can virtually be used with like any drug? Uh, no, the, the short answer is it can't. Duracert is very good at delivering corticosteroids and small molecules. So antibodies and antibody fragments uh, are basically too large at this point to work in Duracert. Uh, we're exploring other alternatives as a company for large molecule delivery, uh, but the current iteration of Duracert, you really have to have smaller molecules. And there are other features of the drug that have to be right, including the solubility and things like that. So no, the, the quick answer is you can't put any drug into Duracert. That, that would be terrific if you could, but we're, we're limited to certain characteristics. All right. Uh, changing a bit, you know, but still staying within the same team of uh, having sustained release devices and decreasing the burden of continuous treatment. I'd like to talk a bit about the DEXIQ. So it is, it is a little different, right? Because you're not actually injecting a, 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 like a, a device inside the eye. It's, it's, it's like a aqueous or suspension that you inject using your, like a normal intravitreal injection. Yeah, so, so, so DEXIQ is actually a different technology that we, uh, we, we, uh, obtained. Uh, it's the Verisome technology, and it is a short-acting corticosteroid that basically uh, goes in as this tiny little droplet, uh, and it's used uh, post-surgical for uh, reducing post-surgical inflammation, uh, and it's most commonly used at the end of cataract surgery, although technically it could be used at the end of any intraocular surgery, uh, and the idea is to replace the topical corticosteroid drops and the, it's inserted into the uh, posterior capsule at the end of cataract surgery, uh, dissolves typically over a period of weeks and really provides excellent uh, anti-inflammatory coverage for these uh, post-surgical eyes. So the Verisome technology is versatile and, and it's uh, possible that that type of technology might be useful for other drugs other than steroids, which again is something that we are internally studying here at iPoint to see if it makes sense to use that technology for other drugs and perhaps for posterior segment delivery. How does that replace like eye drops in terms of uh, like a frequency of use? Well, it, it, it... for the vast majority of patients who, who get executed, they don't need corticosteroid eye drops after surgery. So their, their surgeon may still choose to give them antibiotic drops. Uh, some do, some don't. They may choose to go completely dropless and just use the, uh, the, the DEXIQ and, and not even use a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. But, but again, it, it's a patient compliance thing. You know, using those drops for elderly patients is difficult four times yeah. a day for several weeks. And we know that they're not always compliant. 
and doing it. And this way, the doctor is completely in control of the drug delivery and they know that the patient's going to get it. Yeah, I actually read a, a, a paper recently that 90% of patients after cataract surgery do not use their yeah. steroid drops like yeah. the way they should. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, so we, we know those kind of statistics from glaucoma and other areas as well. And, and having the doctor in control of the drug delivery certainly has advantages. And I think that's one of the things that's a hallmark of the anti-VEGF uh, era, which is we deliver, we retina specialists deliver the anti-VEGFs to the back of the eye. So we know the patient's getting them. Uh, you know, the downside has been not efficacy or certainly not safety. It's the fact that they have to be delivered so frequently. That's really the downside. Indeed. Jay, enough of science a bit. Look, I, I, I would like to talk a bit more about the, your role at iPoint, at, at particularly uh, because like most, most doctors, when they, when, when they join a boardroom and they, they, or the C-suit, you know, in your case, uh, they, they usually become chief medical officers or, or like a, a medical director. And then, mm -hmm. but you're a COO, which is, yes. has a much more, you know, like a managerial responsibility that, than, than a CMO, I would, I would, I would guess. And so my question is like, how different it is, you know, like, I mean, to be a COO compared to a CMO? Uh, the answer is, I don't know. I've never been a CMO, but, but we have an mm -hmm. excellent CMO here, uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Dario Pacciarino. Uh, and, and Dario is just fantastic. And he and I work very well together. And so that we, I point didn't need a CMO. We had an excellent one. Uh, but from an operational perspective, you know, a lot of what I did as chair uh, Tufts was really operational things. Make, you know, as they say, making the trains run on time, making the clinic work well, keeping the doctors happy, keeping the staff happy. And those kind of operational aspects, some of them are very similar at, at any company. Uh, you know, good communication, communicating decisions, making decisions, uh, you know, with the right people in the room and getting the decisions made in a certain period of time and tying in the financial aspects of things so that the finance people know what the clinical decisions are and when we, you know, are, you know, then when the clinical trials are going to occur so they can, you know, do the budgeting appropriately. It's really, you know, kind of those big picture things that, uh, frankly, had a lot of overlap of, of what I was doing before. So, uh, yeah, I, I would say maybe it's a little unusual, uh, but I think from my skill set and my interests, uh, chief operating officer really fits, fits in uh, quite well. In saying that, obviously, because I'm a practicing retina specialist, I've had a lot of experience with developing drugs from a clinician's perspective. I do have that to add here at iPoint, but, but, you know, there are other aspects of things and, and, you know, most of us clinicians don't really know how complicated things like manufacturing, uh, commercialization, uh, regulatory issues dealing with the FDA, you know, you really need to have very uh, subspecialized people within your organization who know how to do that well. And, and so fortunately, again, we've got a lot of those people here at iPoint uh, who are really, really good at what they do. And so those are aspects which as a clinician, you know, we would only have, you know, touched on lightly in our, in our, in, in our careers. And, you know, fortunately I'm learning a lot, but we have really good people here who, who know how to do those tasks. Yeah. So it seems that 
your I mean your training to become a CEO started like I mean way before you joined I I point right like I mean, managing yeah. other institutions and clinics and, yeah and so some might say it's a nature versus nurture thing too you know you've got to enjoy doing these things otherwise you don't do them and so I I have enjoyed in the past operational aspects of things and having a plan for moving something forward, whether it's a satellite office or a new ambulatory surgery center or hiring a new doctor and then watching the plan work and giving the, the, uh, the, the new doctor or the new satellite all the chances to be successful. So again, the goals may be different in, in biotech, but the idea of having long-term plans and putting the people and the financing and everything else into place to make them successful, it's been the same. Yeah. And because it like that, that, that sometimes comes as a surprise, right? Like for uh, a pure clinician or, or a researcher that like, I mean, to bring a successful drug to market, it takes more than, just having a drug that actually works in in and in the lab right like yes. I mean, there's yeah. so many moving pieces there that to, to get up like just put it all together yeah we're gonna tell you kind of lift up the hood and look at the engine you have no idea how complicated it is mm -hmm. uh so so yeah but that's part of the challenge and and one of the things i really like about my new position is it is a new challenge and it's very complicated. You can't understand everything, you know, but, but again, as a COO, I don't need to, to, to know how the carburetor works because I've got a really good mechanic here who fixes carburetors. I just got to allow them to do their job successfully using that under the hood analogy, but it is really complicated. And, and you know, we all had that experience where we might've joined a phase three trial and we looked at the protocol and we said, oh, why did the company choose to set the protocol this way? Well, we have no idea about the thought processes that go into each of those decisions and they really really are extensive and and uh the the whole background behind getting to a phase three program and developing the protocol for the phase three program is, is quite complex i can only imagine coming to a wrap here because I, I really want to be mindful of your time i know how busy you are uh if you can wrap our, our, our chat with uh Maybe a piece of advice, you know, for someone that did that transition successfully, you know, like, uh, so a word to maybe like young doctors that are considering uh, uh, like putting their feet into the industry or be it like joining an established company or maybe starting uh, joining a startup or, I mean, what would it take, like, I mean, for them to do the transition successfully in terms of like training? Because, I mean, they, they might be a doctor, they have residency, subspecialization, and so on. Do they need an MBA? Like, so what kind of training would be needed, like, I mean, for them to? Yeah, it's, it's, Bruno, it's a great question. And, and I think the answer is really complicated and not a one size fits all. You know, the first thing I'd say is being a retina specialist is a really, really good job. And that uh, for, for in a lot of ways, you can look at what we do and how we help patients and we get to operate and we get to, you know, make diagnoses in the clinic and work with people over the long term. You know, it, there aren't a lot of jobs around that are going to give you more satisfaction than that. So one of the reasons, one of the things you have to think about if you're thinking about another career is the answer why is, is that what excites you about drug development 
uh, or working in a, in a pharma industry that you're not going to get in, in your current career. And then the question, of course, is how, how to prepare for it. That's really hard because in some ways, what you do day to day in the pharma industry is very different than what you do day to day as a physician. And the ability to understand the complexity of things is not something that you necessarily know you're going to be good at or, 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 or you know, can do overnight. I think the, the easiest way for most people in our field to, to try to do that is, is try to get involved with clinical trials and try to get involved with a variety of companies, not just very large pharma companies that are you know, in phase three, but even some smaller companies who are just kind of starting out and they're looking for advice and they're looking for help with designing the trials and, and see if you enjoy that and see if you have uh, the ability to kind of look at the broader picture. Uh, as you say, Bruno, it's not just you know getting a drug approved, the, all the things that go into it, are really complicated and, and see if you've got a propensity to help understand that process. Uh, making the leap is hard though. And, and I, and again, I, I guess maybe it was easier for me because I had a background with the technology. I'd been on the board of, the, of iPoint for, for four years before I joined. So I knew the company well, but I think by doing that, by having a diligence into the company that you're going to join, I think that's really important. And for the most part, the diligence is really two things. It's the people, and it's the product. And you have to work with people that you trust and you like and you share a philosophy and you have to believe in the product. Now, sometimes when the product's early, it's hard to know if you can believe in it or not, but at least the mission, what are they trying to do? Is this something that excites me? Those so at a high level, those are the two big things. It's the people. And the Indeed. Product. And also like, let me just summarize like the advice you you gave it's like the that leap like doesn't need to be that abrupt right it can be gradual and then they can realize yeah. if that's what they really want before like i mean exactly at some point you do take the leap but yes you can dip your toe into the water and wait out a little bit at, at times but but then i think that once you've waded out into the water and you say i'm going to try it then those two aspects mm -hmm. the two p's the people and the product that's that's really what you what you want to look for great uh jay didn't disappoint like i mean i really like like having that chat with you thank you very much like for giving a bit of your valuable time like coming to us and uh i'm sure our audience will enjoy as well bruno thank you very much for having me it's been fun talk to you soon all right have a good one and that concludes today's episode of the broad eye podcast if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Of course, ratings and reviews are always welcome. And you can certainly share this episode with any of your colleagues or friends who might enjoy it. Thanks for listening.